week of March 21st, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 534, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in my inbox, I'm Michael Giltz. I have no idea what you're referring to. Obviously, it's some email thing that I probably didn't find an email or you emailed me and I didn't look it up. And <laughs> now I'm behind in emails again. I am behind in emails. Are you? Are you? You were clearing them out. You cleared off yes. like 10 years. Where did you end up? I ended up at like 400 emails left and a lot of them were from- And you, did, and you didn't finish? <laughs> and I was so close. Yeah, after 10,000, so you didn't finish? Now, what are you back up to? 2,000? Look at your email inbox right now. I don't want to talk about it. All right. Well, episode 534 <laughs> makes me think of how many emails I receive a day. <laughs> but I clear, I clear them off. I got two email pitches sort of related to the entertainment industry. I mean, I, they're all related practically, but these are weird ones. One was about uh, somebody pitching me saying their company is called Loud, and they say they can get thousands of real Spotify listeners to add my songs to their playlists, which can then, of course, attract the attention of Spotify algorithms. So they pay people to add songs to their real-world playlists, and then they can go to, you can go to Spotify and say, hey, look, people are adding my song. Maybe I can, you know. So you're buying an audience, just like people have been doing since, you know, payola and the days of radio began. But, I, you know, why they think... I. I don't have a song. I have to write a song and then I can pay loud to pay thousands of people to add my song to their playlist for how much. I wonder what those people get paid, like 50 cents a, tr a track or a dollar a day or something. Who knows? I, I want to know this. Can they add our podcast to their playlist? <laughs> That's <laughs> what I want to know. I bet they can. You can buy an audience. Sure. You got the money. You can do it. And the other email I got was from the Writers and Publishers Network. And do I want to do a book review for 50 bucks? Maybe that's about what I get paid these days. <laughs> but so apparently self-published authors pay them to pay you to write and post a review of their book. Uh, you know, this company serves as the go-between. Now they tell you in this email, they're like, by the way, we're not asking you to write glowing reviews, right? No, no, no. This is totally legit. We just want you to write a review and then post it on your blog or whatever. And, you know, social media accounts and people will see it, right? However, they then say, if you read the first chapter and you don't like it, you should just request another book. And they say, who knows? You might find a gem. And so I'm like, really? And I asked, I responded. I said, hey, how are you? Interesting. Who pays for the review? You know, is it you to me? Do they pay you directly $50? Do they pay you $100? You know, what do they pay you or what do you pay them? I'm just trying to find out who's paying for this review because I've never written for an author to pay me to write their book anymore. And second, if you don't require a positive review, why do you tell us not to keep reading if we don't like it? <laughs> to which they said, crickets. <laughs> no response. <laughs> so do two emails in a day to game the system. Pay people to review your book. Some poor sap who's a self-published author pays them money so they can pay somebody, semi-legit like me, to review their book for them. Did and if I don't like it, I shouldn't do it. <laughs> did you read the article in the New York Times about uh, book oh, talk? Oh. Oh, book yeah, talk. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a TikTok for books where the, the, the people review books on TikTok. I really want to look at some of those videos. I want to know how they do that. It's a book for Pete's sake. What do they do? Read it out loud? No, they do one. It's TikTok. So it's 15 seconds, right? No, no, no. One minute. Oh, one minute. Yeah. So they talk, you know, the book is about this. I liked it. It was good. What's what do you mean? Yeah, they just I review guess. it. And people review movies on TV all the time in 30 seconds. You know, the one thing that I can uh, guarantee, though, I can't guarantee whether we'll be, you know, added to any playlists or we're certainly not going to. I can guarantee we're not going to pay for anything. That's for darn sure. <laughs> if we but, don't get paid, you don't get paid. <laughs> that's right. But you will tell us what we talk about this week. You will guarantee the topics that we will cover. Yes. And I can also guarantee one other thing. Oh, that our podcast will be shorter than the Schneider cut. Schneider cut What is it? the Snyder cut. Of the Justice League. Is, is, he, a, is he a Jew? <laughs> no, Snyder Cut. <laughs> the, uh, the, it will be shorter than the four and a half hour Snyder Cut. Well, that's good to know. But if we don't start on it, it will be long. So tell us, what are we going to talk about? Well, Michael, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, you're hoping that you'll have better box office figures to work from. That, that much I know. And China should be thrilled that movies made by and about Chinese people are garnering so much award uh, season potential, especially this year. Too bad that includes director Chloe Zhao, who once criticized the country she was born in and an Oscar-nominated short about the people of Hong Kong fighting for their freedom from the mainland, which obviously did not succeed, as we now know. 
Oops. On Inside Baseball, we'll zero in on streaming because so much news is happening in that area. And get this, Michael, you're switching from cable to YouTube TV today. And you are not happy. No. Oh, and we've got some vague ideas of how to fix the TV rating system. We're going to figure it all out here. But since it involves everyone cooperating and sharing information, that is about as much chance as happening as Michael getting some good box office info. Of course, during a big deal or big whoop, we'll discuss the week's top entertainment news headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gilt, who has scraped together... Basically, all the, the the box office tickets that he found on the, on the on the ground, and and will tell us uh, <laughs> what what he hand counted. Yeah, it's not easy, but we're looking at box office around the world for the week ending March twenty first. We cover the last seven days. I see the China box office also does that. The China box office reporting that we get does cover the last seven days as well. It's the only way to go. Why ignore Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday day in Hollywood in North America? They cover Thursday night. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it makes no sense. Why ignore the other three days or three and a half days? So China does it as well. They cover the entire previous week's box office gross. So we look at the worldwide box office and basically all we do is we find out how much the total worldwide box office is for a movie this week. And we subtract it from what the total was last week. And that's how we figure out the total weekly worldwide box office for every movie. The problem occurs when people aren't, you know, Reporting on it. I don't know what's been going on. The last few weeks, there have not been good stories in the trades about the weekend box office, the international box office. They've been doing it the whole pandemic, and suddenly they're dropping the ball. I don't know what's going on, but it's all kind of confusing. As best as we know, this week, the number one movie around the world is also the number one movie of all time. It's Avatar, which grossed another $23 million all in China. Last week, it grossed $21 million in just a few days. This week, in the seven-day period, it grossed $23 million. Great word of mouth. They're happy to see it. It's worldwide total. Now moving past Avengers of more and more, $2,834,000,000, which I guarantee won't be broken until Avatar 2. So if that's that. the number one movie, $23 million. At number two is Raya and the Last Dragon. It made another $18 million this week, despite being available on demand in a lot of countries where it's also playing in the theaters. You just have to pay 30 bucks if you have Disney+. Plus. Total worldwide, $71 million. It should be more like $710 million when all is said and done. That's what you would normally expect. It's a Disney family film. Great word of mouth. Very good reviews. A fun movie. It's a shame that, you know, we're still dealing with this pandemic. At number three around the world is Hi, Mom, a Chinese time travel comedy, which I am sure Hollywood has bought the remake rights for. That grossed $10 million this week. So did Tom and Jerry, which is also at about $77 million worldwide. Then right below that, jumping down a notch, is Detective Chinatown 3. That's set in Tokyo's Chinatown. It grossed $5 million worldwide, and it's getting close and will pass the $700 million mark. So that's another big success story along with Hi Mom for the Chinese New Year. Right below that is Shin Evangelion, uh, Jackie Joban. Uh, It's an anime film. It's the last in the Evangelion series, if I'm saying that right. It's a huge Japanese series. I think it's TV show into movies or something like that. It's anime. It grossed $4 million this week, so it fell hard from last week. It's 34... uh, Oh, that's not right. Ignore... It's at... It's it's thirty four million dollars total right now worldwide. So it's uh, it's slowing down hard. When I looked at the trailer, I found out in North America this film will be rated R. So that Ooh. really kind of yeah, there you go, baby. A little violence, I guess, and maybe a little sex. Who knows? But it, it clearly is the end of a series. When you're watching it, you feel like you're coming into the finale. You know, like oh, it's the last episode of the series because <laughs> you feel like wait, what's going on? So it clearly will play best to people who are really into this. So it's not the sort of film that will broaden out to a bigger audience. So we don't expect much from it in North America, but it is going to open up here soon. Right below that is a new film, our first new film of the week. It's Overall Planning, which I am sure is a bad translation. It's a Chinese comedy action film that seems to be set in a hotel. Wackiness and some criminal antics ensue. It opened to $3 million this week. Right below that is Chaos Walking, the Tom Holland sci-fi flick, the first in the proposed trilogy. I doubt we'll see the other two. It made $2 million and got terrible reviews 
It's at 14 million bucks worldwide. Then Oscar hopeful Minari that made $2 million this week. Thanks to a big box office in Korea and some from North America. That's at $6 million total. Then another movie, which opened, Oh, I forgot another film. Uh, a movie opened up in India. It opened last week. It's called Ruhi, a comedy horror flick. Namaste Bollywood. We're so glad to see you turn the lights back on. That made another $2 million this week. That's at $4 million total. Uh, it took me hours to remember how to convert horror into rupees into dollars. If I got it off by a digit, I'm horribly misreporting this film, but I don't think I am. Uh, also opening up this week was Mumbai Saga. Mumbai Saga opened up this week. I'm not sure what it's about, but it made uh, about eight crore or 80 million rupee, which I think would translate to about... A million dollars. No, about a million dollars. About it's roughly a below or above a million dollars. Not enough to up up upgrade to two million. It's not one point seven million or anything like that. So it's about it's about half of what Ruhi made. A little bit more. So about maybe one point four, one point five. I'm not sure. Uh, I should have done a better job with that, but I forgot about that film. Mumbai Saga also opened up in Bollywood in, in India. So that's great to see two new movies in the theaters. And uh, right below that, Andy Lau's film Endgame and Denzel Washington's The Little Things, those both made a million dollars. So, you know, th they're making a million dollars in their market. This week, of course, the LA market opened up. It hit $1.5 million. It exploded. It rocketed in the box office. It was headlines that people spent $1.5 million in tickets in the Los Angeles area. That's how far we have to go. <laughs> yes. And now remember, only 25% capacity. In, of course, of course. Yeah. Okay. And worldwide box office this year, we got you know final or final figures. The worldwide box office hit $12 billion in 2020. Thank you, China. In 2019, North American box office alone hit $11.4 billion. And worldwide box office was $42 billion. So obviously, when we're comparing next year to this year, that's just a waste of time. We're going to look back at 2019. There's no point to reference 2021 to 2020. And in fact, we may be doing that with 2022, going back to 2019, because we're not open up yet. You know, it's going to be the fall, perhaps, where people really start going back to the movies in robust fashion. But movies are scheduled to come out. We'll have to see what happens. It's good to see. But that's at the box office. But what hasn't stopped are film festivals. Sperling, I know you attended South by Southwest, at least virtually. That's great to see. I know Khan is doing a virtual market in May, and then I think the fest itself is in July, and I don't think they're going to try to do anything virtually in terms of the festival itself and critics. I hope these other festivals say, hey, we should leave this option open for people to attend virtually for critics to go. It's fun to get everybody in a room together, but you can invite more people. You can have people who are disabled or can't afford to travel to your festival also take part. Smaller newspapers, smaller outlets can do it. And I, I think they'll be missing the boat if they don't keep this option open. How was it for you to attend South by Southwest? You know, so now I've gone to a couple of these film festivals virtually. The American uh, Film Institute Festival, uh, so AFI Fest last year. Uh, and certainly there was Toronto, uh, which I did not go to. Uh, and the New York Film Festival, again, I did not go to that either. But this year, I've been to Sundance, Berlin, and South by Southwest. So as far as kind of starting over a new year and looking at these festivals that had a whole year to plan for this, especially I, South by Southwest. Yeah. Their festival was canceled last year at the very last minute. Uh, each one of them has little quirks about how they do their online thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so how far much the, time you have to do it, to watch it, stuff like that. Exactly. So far, the best one that kind of mimicked the festival experience was Sundance. And that is both a good and a bad thing. So it kind of made certain films feel exclusive and you couldn't see everything. And mm -hmm. Whereas uh, Berlin, because of the time zone thing, you only had 24 hours to watch certain Oof. selections. And there was no way, given the time zone difference, that people outside of the European time zone could, could actually do that. Uh, meanwhile, you had South by Southwest saying a film will premiere at a certain day or time. And from that moment forward, you can watch the film until the Saturday at midnight, Great. until the festival at eight. Absolutely. However, yeah. one, it has to be available in your country. Okay. So most of the films were available in the US, but not overseas. Number two, there has to be enough quote unquote virtual seats. So they kind of made some kind of scarcity, uh, which I kind of think, okay, do that for the public. 
But for why? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for journalists, really, you're going to do that? Like, what's if you've got point? people actually interested in watching your films and writing about it, why make it hard for them? Right. And so what's really interesting about all this is you get to see the programming choices. And remember, this is a pandemic year, so the choices weren't as robust as they would be in a normal year. But there are some really good, good films out there. And you get to see how those festivals get programmed and the types of films those, well, how, those how 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 do how do you know that based on attending the festival how, what new way does do you get insight into that all you know is what they chose you don't know what they had options to choose from right but i guess what i'm saying is the caliber of film the the subject matters it uh, all depends on what was available though Yes, correct. That is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so that's cool. They did a pretty good job. This is their first time doing something like this. That's great to see. We hope other people attend. And guess what? I assume you never attended South by Southwest before. Maybe you did. It's a little techie. Have you ever been? No, no, no. No, and you've never been to Berlin. So that's two film festivals you provided coverage for that you never would have before. So you saw some good movies. What did you think of The Fallout by directed by Megan Park? Yes, it won the festival. It is about the, well, the fallout after a school shooting and two teenagers, Maggie Ziegler being one of them, the popular girl. Uh, and it was incredibly well done. And, you know, it's a school shooting. I'm not giving anything away. They talk about it in you know, all the... That's what know, the movie's about, yes. Yeah, uh, but incredibly well done, incredibly well acted. Uh, you know, is it on the calendar? That movie easily could have been in in Sundance and gotten away with it. Well, that sounds like a movie to watch. What about? Uh, were there any other favorites from the fest that you liked? Well, I'll, I'll tell you at least about the film that won the documentary competition. Lily topples the world. It's directed by Jeremy Workman about a a girl adopted from China when she's one years old, grows up in New Hampshire. She becomes a quote unquote domino artist. Very geeky. She she and these are people who like you know set up dominoes for fall. Right. We got it. And and she is a YouTube sensation. It's a little bit uh it doesn't go as deep as a documentary you would like, but it's it's fun to watch. It's very What are the dominoes made of? Why do they fall? Do they like No, like about the about the about (laughs) the you know, yeah. Of course, of course. Um I would say one of my other favorite films of this festival was a film called Swan Song, directed by Todd Stevens and starring Udo Kier. And I hope that this film gets noticed because for Udo Kier, I think he is awards worthy in this movie. It is, he is, it's a very funny movie, uh, but a very touching movie. He plays a, uh, a guy, a former hairdresser, retired, living in a nursing home. And you know what? He, uh, he's asked by a lawyer of the, he's in Sandusky, Ohio, by the way, a blue collar at down and out town. He's asked to come and do the hair for the doyan of the town, the big rich woman of the town, uh, who has died. And in her, in her will, it's stipulated that he do the hair, both the history there. It's just everything about it works. It's, I've heard, I've heard it's a lot. Of, I've heard it's a lot of fun. It is definitely a, you know, career capper for Udo. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I suggest seeing this movie. I didn't see The Recovery, which a lot of people are talking about. I did see Language Lessons. This is the Mark Duplass movie, and I uh, forgive me, I am forgetting the um, the woman who's in it. And it, The whole thing is done by a FaceTime where he winds up, and Natalie Morales it stars in it and directs it, and it's done, It's she's teaching him Spanish, but via FaceTime, she's in Costa Rica, he's in Oakland, and it's about the relationship that develops between the two and why it develops and how it de- it's it's really well done. It shouldn't work, and yet it does. Mm-hmm. Well, and of course, this year we know uh, documentaries are easier to make during a pandemic for various reasons. It's a smaller crew, smaller and simpler, and we know we're in the midst of the Me Too movement, so it's perhaps no surprise that a lot of the docs focused on women. You had docs at, at South by Southwest about Demi Lovato, Charlie XS, Selma Blair, and of course, Lily Topples the World. Yes. And, you know, yeah, so I, I called those the narcissistic documentaries because they were all about like, oh, what was me? I can't create during the pandemic. Oh, well, there goes the end of Me Too. Sperling has no empathy for a woman <laughs> no. or, or female artist in the world. It, okay, it, good to know. All it right. didn't matter whether it was female or male. You know, it's like basically, however, the Selma Blair documentary, of course, she's an actress who uh, was diagnosed with MS and it follows her through a stem cell transplant. 
it's very moving and, and informative, frankly. Uh, so that is, is worth seeing if only because it, it, it really takes you into what it's like to kind of go through that process. Well, cool. Well, this, this next year, hopefully, we'll be talking about Udo Kier and his Oscar hopeful campaign with his movie, uh, Swan Song. The one and thing this- we'll also be talking about, actually, uh-huh. mm-hmm. coming out of South by Southwest, here's what you're beginning to see. A lot of movies, A, set around the, the pandemic. The pandemic plays a crucial part of their, of their, uh, their storyline. And uh-huh. B, in the credits, you're seeing... Uh, the, in the end credits, you're seeing pan, uh, COVID-19 safety guide, of course, COVID-19 of course. safety team. You're of seeing th- that credited. Well, of course. We'll probably be seeing that for the rest of our lives on movies. Uh, but yeah. we are seeing also a lot of buzz at award season. China's having a great year and a terrible year. They want to celebrate director Chloe Zhao and her success with Nomadland, which is certainly one of the two or three front runners for the Best Picture Oscar and perhaps Best Director as well. But they don't want to do it because like 10 years ago or eight years ago, she said something negative about China. <laughs> so sorry about that. They also may not broadcast the Oscars or they may do it on a serious delay because they don't want to show any information about the, pro- the documentary short Do Not Split, which was nominated for the best documentary short film. And it's, of course, as you said, about Hong Kong protesters. So mm, not good for them. They're really debating. Maybe they've told people already downplay the Oscars, don't talk a lot about the Oscars, don't mention the Oscars a lot. Yeah, that thing's happening over there and there's a couple Chinese people involved, but let's, never mind, not important. Ignore it, keep moving here. (laughs) So they're sort of torn. If she wins, it'll make it even harder for them because they don't want to celebrate the success of people who ever say anything remotely negative about China. Well, let's face mm -hmm. it, they're very good. That government is very good at burying the truth, uh, much the way if you show a picture of Tiananmen Square to most people under the age of, say, 30, they have no idea what you're showing them a picture mm, of. That's true. But if you show peach people a WGA award, they go, oh, that's pretty cool. The Writers Guild of America handed out their big awards. And in film, the two movies that won Best Adapted and Best Original Screenplay are Borat's subsequent movie film and Promising Young Woman. Clearly, that's not going to push them over the top for Best Film, but it's always good to win. So those two films get another big boost. And these are from the writers, who some of whom actually vote on the Oscars. So a Guild Award really means a lot. It certainly means if you haven't done so yet, you should check out those two films. Yeah, I mean, and I probably, well, Promising Young Woman I've seen. I ha- I, for some reason, I don't know why I just have shied away from Borat, but I should actually watch it. Unlike, say, I don't know, Justice League, it is something I actually want to see. Justice League is oh, unlike Justice League, I got you right. Yeah, Justice <laughs> League is big, but it's not a big deal. I thought, ah! I thought, oh, I see what you're doing there. Now you probably just heard some ice shifting in in Michael's glass there. Oh, sorry thought, about that. I, I thought he was he was actually I'm... taking a, a a drink to do a spit take, and I was like, <laughs> does know this is radio, right? Like they can't I... actually see that. Big? No, I'm I'm, I'm just thirsty. Okay, well, since you did mention big deal, uh, why not talk about some stories that might be big, they might be big deals, or they might just be big whoops, because it is time for Big Deal, Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment, and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, well, the NFL, well, the first story is, can I just cut to the end where we say it's a big deal. The National Football League, they struck a 10-year deal with multiple outlets that will bring in tens of billions of dollars for the sports league. I mean, it's always good to have a lot of companies competing for the right to show us like uh, we should probably have Wondery and Spotify. And Oh, you're talking about NFL. I'm sorry. Uh, You know, again, great to have lots of companies competing to show your games. And that's exactly what the NFL has. The right to air or stream games is divvied up between, get this, Fox, NBC, CBS, ABC, ESPN, and and Amazon. For the first time, Amazon will have exclusive rights to air Thursday night football. So if you want to watch the NFL on Thursday night, you'll have to get Amazon Prime. But hey, if you do, you'll also get free shipping. The NAACP, (laughs) by the way, called on the NFL to rethink its relationship with Fox since Fox News repeatedly bashes the NFL, its players, and by the way, the entire black community. If they do want to rethink it, well, I guess the NFL has uh, 10 years to do so. Big deal or big whoop. (laughs) Yeah, they said, oh, we want to, wait, how many zeros? Oh, uh, sorry, maybe next time. Uh, Yeah, remember just five minutes ago when I was looking at the concussions and the 
the decade-long conspiracy to hide the effects of playing football on players and the, the horrible mental and health effects that it has on them, the racism in the NFL, the mistreatment of players like Colin Kaepernick, the boycott uh, by artists of the halftime show, how all these things, and the fact that parents don't want their kids to play football when they're, you know, you shouldn't have your child play football. You're crazy if you do, frankly, because it's just not healthy to have little mini concussions on a child's brain for the next 10 years. So don't do it. Flag football, sure. Baseball, sure. Football, no. So all that stuff looked like, wow, there could be a reckoning for football. And it's true. There could be in 10 or 20 years. But there has been a decline in all sports during the pandemic, and that includes football. Ratings did decline, but it declined less for the NFL than for most other sports in North America. We're not talking about Europe. I really don't know what happened to the ratings for, you know, European football, soccer in the rest of the world. If you do, let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also, you know, follow us on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, or you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. That's right. And we're going to be talking about streaming in just a minute. So to point out this deal, Amazon is a big deal, of course, Amazon Prime. You also have Peacock the NBC Universal thing, they'll be able to stream some exclusive games. And Disney, Disney will be simulcasting on ASP, ASP, ABC, ESPN, and ESPN Plus at times. And Paramount Plus will also live stream along with CBS. So streaming is involved every which way you can think about it. I know a couple of things to point out here. One of the problems that you have is a who's on first problem, what I like to call a who's on first problem. Meaning Who? who? Yeah, well, what I mean, no, what is on second? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. He's on third base. Um, but uh, no, what I mean by this is that, wait, it's Thursday. So if it's Thursday and I want to watch do the you NFL go? game, yep, yep. So we, then it's, wait, it's on Amazon or is it on ESPN Plus? I can't remember. Well, you um, know, if you have a, a, a smart device and you're streaming onto your TV, you just search NFL and they will show you and take you to the channel that it's on. So if you're in the main section, or if you're in YouTube TV and you search for something, you just say, I want to watch Judge Judy. It doesn't look for it on YouTube TV. It shows you where it is anywhere, on demand or available or streaming right then. So that may be part of the solution to that. But people have been dealing with that for years, going back between ABC and Fox and CBS and all that. So I'll that's not a new thing. problem. If I, I'll tell you one thing, if I was a cable operator, or a cable provider, I would be incredibly concerned because the reality is oh, yeah. they're selling all my programming to streaming services, mostly themselves, by the way. Mm -hmm. So there's that whole issue. But they did have to, at the, at, you know, in this case, they had to pay the NFL. So they're not actually paying themselves or lowballing themselves to air their own content. In this case, it's Oh, yeah. They're no. but, the, but they're favoring streaming more and more over their broadcast channels. Now, tell Correct. me, what's happening over at WME? Uh, people are dying. What? Yeah, well, you know, the talent agency, William Morris Endeavor, they just announced a bunch of new signings, actually. So actually, I shouldn't say that. People are dying, but they're also signing clients. And by the way, those are the same people. Among the hot acts they'll now be representing is Peter Tosh, one of reggae's superstars and an original member of the Whalers. They'll also be representing Andy Kaufman, the envelope-pushing comic who could give Borat a run for his money. I love and, him. Yeah, and songstress Eartha Kitt, who hits the charts every year with her holiday hit, Santa Baby. Word is WME also has its eye on crooner Bing Crosby, Charlie Chaplin, and Mae West. Okay, so all those people are dead, but the signings aren't a joke. The talent agency is moving into the lucrative territory of estate management. Holograms, biopics, repackaging of old material. Just because an artist is dead is no reason to stop putting them to work and collecting that 10%. Big <laughs> deal or big whoop. Yeah, they're doing stuff like thinking we can do a podcast about, you know, Bing Crosby or the life of Eartha Kitt. We can do stage musicals. We can do fashion collaborations. All great. I have to admit, I'm a little surprised they weren't in it before. Does this mean CAA and other agencies don't do estate management? I mean, I, they, they tend not to because really? it's a it's a lot of work. And I happen to know. <laughs> and they can make money. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a lot it, of work. Lazy no, people. I mean, it's it's not just. 
oh, you want to, it's not just order taking. In other words, it's not just somebody wants uh, one of my clients to star in a movie. Here's how much it'll cost you. It's tracking down people who are using the images of, of other, you know, I would say the, they should outsource some of the work that estate management requires. There's, I happen to know a couple- busy work, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and uh, enforcement work. That's one of the big issues is enforcement. That said, I, I knew a couple of people who were in different estates, uh, one of whom was uh, working, was the, not executor, but was in charge of the Bob Marley estate. It was a full-time job and then some. I'm they sure. Took it, they took it as like, oh, this will be a nice part-time job. In the end, they were like, I have to quit. I can't keep doing this. A part-time job? They're crazy. Well, speaking of crazy, okay, if we're talking about crazy, let's talk about the Chinese government. I'll never be allowed into that country again after saying that, I'm sure. I've been uh, there. You know, I've been yeah, there. I, you know, some companies, by the way, are just too big and have too much influence over public spaces like the media and social networks. Like showbiz sandbox, we are too big. We should be broken up into showbiz and sandbox. Either do sand yes. or do entertainment. Well, Enough. Yes. Better yet, we should be broken into show or biz or sand and box. Four. We have four businesses I'll under take, one roof. I'll take biz. Okay, I'll take the, the box. <laughs> I just like boxes. I'm like a cat in that way. Keep going. Anyway, anyway the, here's the good news, okay? The government is finally stepping in and insisting the companies that are too big to fail are indeed oh. too big to stay at the current size. That's what the, that's, you know, you, blew, like, you blew the whole joke, by the way, of this piece. You mentioned it was China at the top. You're supposed to say, you know, some companies are too big and have too much influence over public spaces. The good news, the government is finally stepping in and insisting the companies too big to fail are too big to stay at their current size. The bad news, it's not the U.S. or the EU or Australia doing it. It's China. <laughs> yeah, well. You, you, you brought the punchline up to the top. What is the Chinese government doing? By the way, that is why I failed as a stand-up comic, I should say. <laughs> oh, did you ever do it? I'd love to see the tape. Yes, I, I said, hey, everybody, thanks for coming to get to the other side. Guess what? Why did the Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever do stand-up? No, I've never oh, done that's just, Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, I came out and said, take my wife, please. If and then you ever do, <laughs> videotape it, video it, live stream it. Do that for me. What is the Chinese government doing? Well, they are setting their sights on the massive multinational company Alibaba, the Chinese equivalent to Amazon. Apparently, the Chinese Communist Party thinks Alibaba has too much sway and is demanding the company get rid of its media holdings. There is so much going on in this news story, but is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. I wish we were doing the same. Is Tencent next? They're just as big. There's lots of other huge companies in China. Uh, but if that just means the only person left standing is the government, that's not great. You're too big to fail, too. <laughs> well, here's what's happening. So Jack Ma, who basically, you know, Alibaba Studios, and, and he runs a lot of stuff, okay? One of them is the Ant Group, which was creating basically this currency, a currency of its own, and right. then was lending lending companies and individuals money through that, which is kind of what the, I don't know, the government does. So the government came in and basically squashed that whole thing and said, hey, you thought you were going public? You thought you were going to kind of uh, take us on? No. And all of a sudden, Jack Ma disappeared. And I don't mean they, they bumped him off or killed him. No, they didn't do that. But for many Many months, nobody knew where Jack Ma was. He was literally MIA. Remember Fan Bingbing? She just yep. kind of disappeared for a while. Same yep. thing. And all of a sudden, he comes up. I think the Chinese government is great. It is wonderful. It is a so. Yeah, that's really what's going on here. It's just the next step. Not only can't right. you have they the don't want any, they don't want any powerful people. Right. Correct. These people are you know they wanted to unleash the power of capitalism. They're making money off of it. Everybody in the upper echelon is living a luxurious life, but they don't want people to get too big and too powerful. Right. Like we are, you know, people That's come right. after us and they say, Michael Sperling, you know, don't abuse your power. With great power comes great responsibility. As an aside for social media, I just saw a piece about a little kid in China who looked like Jack Ma and his nickname was Little Jack Ma. And he was actually a, a social media celebrity, this tiny little kid, and he was making money, like a lot of money off of it. But either because his time had passed as a novelty or because Jack Ma fell out of favor, suddenly he's not making any money anymore. So this kid may be uh, collateral damage to all of that. So isn't that sad? 
It is sad, but you know, maybe the BBC could report on it because the BBC is making a major shift in programming and jobs and location. And wait, did I just say location? Does this mean that more people will work from home or, or they won't be reporting from England? Well, maybe. It also means when people go to work, they won't always be heading into London. The BBC is often criticized for having too narrow a focus, seeing everything from a European or English lens. European? Urban, urban. Like a big urban. city. A big I said city urban. People. You said European. I said urban. All right. But you know what? Urban slash European slash I'm certainly same not thing. European now. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same. Uh, the Beeb pledged to move almost $1 billion US in spending and hundreds of jobs outside London to better reflect the audience it is serving, an audience that can be found in Liverpool and Yorkshire, not to mention Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales. And guess what? The United States, because the BBC News Hour, World News Hour, it plays here. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it is a big deal. I think it's important. You could say, oh, are you trying to catch up with Netflix? Because Netflix films programming for the UK in Liverpool, Manchester, Sheffield, Wales, and Southwest, as well as London. But, you know, let's put it in perspective. Uh, the BBC, you know, Netflix and others do like 2,000 hours of programming a year. BBC creates 22,000 hours of programming. Uh, they do a lot of it in central London. And you can understand, once you build studios and have the equipment and the things set up there, it, uh, sometimes it doesn't make sense to you to think, oh, I should be filming over there and do it all over again and duplicate all those background services. But if you don't do that, sometimes you get a blandness of uniformity and everything is from the same perspective. So they're doing a little catch up there. It's great to see they've always had reporting and journalism all over the country and, and the world. It's good to see they're doing that with programming as well. It's good to diversify. Well, speaking of diversifying, we're going to diversify what we cover in just a moment because that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And let me tell you, this week, this is how the story is going to affect you. My cable box broke. My Ooh. TiVo broke down. Ooh. Okay. I have not actually, I, I have cable. I have it. If I were to, able to actually get the, the tuning adapter to work with the TiVo and the TiVo to work with the tuning adapter, but instead I have to go to the cable company and change everything back in. And while I'm doing that, I'm thinking, should I actually still have cable? Because this week we're going to look again at streaming because that's pretty much where all the action is, right or wrong. Every studio, every TV channel, yes, everyone is pouring money into streaming while streaming video, and they're praying so many people will sign up for their service that they'll make more money with subscribers than the untold billions they've been raking in for decades at the movies and on TV and in syndication, Blu-ray sales and podcasts like this one. Anyway, they're pivoting by God. All of these companies are pivoting, not even risking the golden goose of a $42 billion worldwide box office will stop them. But will it work? We'll find out. But first, let's talk cord cutting. Like me, I want to cut my cord. I just, I just, I just wanted to, I just told you. Right. What you want to do is reduce your bill, your monthly bill. Nobody's cutting the cord. Very few people are saying, I don't want to watch TV. There's lots of great stuff out there. But it is true that some young people never have cable. They're always paying for television in one way or another. My nephew, he just moved into a new apartment. He bought a turntable, which he's never had before, but he did not buy cable. In fact, he's never had cable. However, he said he might add on an over-the-top streaming bundle. He's actually never had that either. He's had things like Netflix and whatever, but he's never had television in his own home. He's never bothered. But the price, he has Wi-Fi, and he's looking at the prices, and he thinks, yeah, maybe I'll go for that. You know why? Because it's a lot cheaper than a big, fat cable bill. For example, I am just switching my household over from Spectrum Cable to YouTube TV. Why? My bill for TV and Wi-Fi, because my brother loves sports, it's $210 a month. That's insane. When I switch to YouTube TV and the other bundled stuff that I have, the basic Wi-Fi and YouTube as compared to the basic Wi-Fi and Spectrum cable, that will be $130 a month. It's $80 less. That does not include the extra stuff like Netflix and Apple Plus and all that stuff. We're paying for that anyway. So our cable bill is more than $210 a month, our TV bill, I should say. But we're reducing that basic package of Wi-Fi and live TV by $80 a month. That's a lot of money. And you know what? The service is not as good. I'm shocked. 
you know, I've switched to YouTube TV and they have a grid, you know, like you would look on your TV and see what's coming up next. It only goes ahead six hours. Isn't that bizarre? Like you want to see what's coming on tonight at eight? You can't do it. You have to go to your your laptop. I call them on the phone. You have to go to your laptop to look, go ahead a week or two. Because I usually sit down and record things and say, what's on Turner Classic Movies for the next two weeks? I'm geeky that way. Or I look for what sports I want to record. You know, that's what I do. You can't do it on your television. You have to go to your laptop to do that. And it takes forever. The DVR, also a total pain. They have a cloud DVR. It has 500 hours. That's great. Everybody can record their own stuff, and there it is. But you know what? If I say I want to record Judge Judy today at 3, I can't. I can only record every episode that airs from now until the end of time, new or rerun. You can't say just record new episodes of The Bachelor or just record new episodes of The Blacklist. It records everything. And so if you have a show that plays a lot and you just want to do one particular time zone or it's rerun three times in a night, and you say, hey, I only need one copy of it, you can't do that on YouTube TV. Isn't that stupid? You would think. What they offered would be at least as good, if not better, than what cable's been offering for the last decade. But it isn't true. But you know what? It's $80 less, so I'm doing it. So question. Uh, first of all, they you now know how much it costs to solve that problem, and it's not $80, okay? In other words, the, to, the you've identified a problem, and you're saying, to solve that problem, I could pay $80, but that's not worth it to me. I'll stick with the problem, which is fine. That's actually how products and pricing works. You know, people go, well, how much, how much should this product cost? Well, should we charge $80? And Michael is saying, no, because I'm not going to pay it. No, <laughs> so, you don't need, you can fix the problem without, they don't need to ink. They just need to do a better job. It's not going to cost them a gazillion dollars or $80 well, a customer well, let me to ask fix you this. their service. They're just doing a bad job because they're new to it and they're not doing a good job yet. There's no reason they can't mimic the same customer interface that cable has offered for a decade they're just lazy well, what about <laughs> Believe hulu me, they're just did you, not doing a look, good job did you look into hulu I, I, or any of these I other looked bundles at, i looked at hulu and sling and and others this one offers by far the best sports package you basically get everything we get with the 210 dollars package we get the sec network big 10 the the, AA, the acc all the i don't care about it but my brother does really robust sports offering and of course most importantly all the local live channels. It depends on your area, but not all of them offer live local programming, including PBS. That was a, a deal breaker. We had to have that. We wanted ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, and CW, and PBS. They offer that. So between that and the sports, that's why they're the winner. They offer about 80 channels. It's $65 a month and another $65 via Spectrum for my Wi-Fi for which I cannot turn anywhere else. There's basically no competitor that offers Wi-Fi service in my home. So I am stuck with Spectrum. I have no option to go with anybody else. I mean, I could pay hundreds of dollars and maybe get you know, SpaceX and get their Wi-Fi, but there's no reasonable option for Wi-Fi. Are you going to well, switch? A couple po- uh, you okay. know, I have actually been thinking about it, and, and there's a couple points here. Uh, what should be happening to the cable industry right now is prices should be falling for the very reason yes. you're talking yes, about. Yes, absolutely. And, and yet they're not, okay, because of long-term carriage deals. But let's put that aside for a second. And they're, af- and they're afraid. They just don't want to reduce their short-term profits in, right. in anticipation say- of keeping customers long-term. You say, you know what? We're going to lose them all. And you know what? If the over-the-top people want to compete more, they need to offer better service in terms of their DVR and their guide. Right. So what I'm going to say is uh, regarding your Wi-Fi, right now there's no competition. However, competition is coming through 5G yeah. and, and later uh, technologies. Instead of you know Spectrum saying, well, we need geographic monopolies because it costs us money to put those cables in. And, and if we're going to spend that money to put those cables in, then we, we have to be sure that people can only buy from us. And basically, people are going to say, well, okay, Spectrum, that's nice, but you're giving me 100 megabits per second. And guess what? Uh, insert name of wireless carrier, so Verizon or AT&T over here, they're also giving me 100 megabits per second for $50 less per month. So I'm right, going to go right with now, Right now, they're not offering Wi-Fi in the home, even 4G or 3G. I can't, I can't get I, I've checked with AT&T and Spectrum and T-Mobile, yeah. and they don't offer it in my, in my, in my area. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, a lot is coming. And there's a reason total paid streaming subscriptions for video worldwide, you know, people subscribing to Netflix, Disney plus star or whatever it might be 1.1 billion and counting. Now I probably own five. So I've got Hulu, 
via my phone company and I've got Netflix and I've got a couple others. But total subscriptions that are paid for is 1.1 billion. That doesn't mean 1.1 billion people have it, but it means some people have four or five or seven. Some people have two. Some people have one. So it's maybe a couple hundred million people buying those subscriptions, but that's a lot of paid subscriptions. That's a lot of money coming in every month. $14 a month, boom, every month for Netflix from North America. It really adds it's up. It's also a lot of room for growth. A lot of room for growth. Exactly. When you realize that $1.1 billion is not people. Plus, looking at Universal, they've got Peacock coming out. It's doing great. They are going to have a, they have a paid freemium service level, just like HBO is going to have. You can turn it on. You can watch it. You see ads. You can't access everything, but you can see a lot of programming as long as you watch a few ads every hour. Guess what? They want to charge primetime rates for ads on Peacock. When people watch Peacock's free version, they get five minutes of ads every hour. You don't want to know one reason people like streaming rather than the network? Because when they turn in prime time, they're getting 17 or 18 minutes of ads. So, you know, it's like what we've been saying for years is, you know what? Fewer ads will appeal to more people. Yeah, they're doing it the long way around, but they're finally realizing they've had too many hours ads shoved into prime time for years now. HBO Max is already selling ads for its ad-supported freemium version. In fact, some advertisers lost out because demand was so high and product relatively low due to the you know small amount of ads on cable, or I should say streaming, versus primetime. So both these people are saying, we're going to have a whole new revenue stream. People paying for the freemium, premium service and people watching for free, but also watching five minutes of ads every once in a while. So that's coming too, isn't it? But what isn't clear to me is whether those ads will run connected to a show, like you're going to buy an ad on Game of Thrones, or whether you buy an ad to when people are watching at, say, 8 p.m. on Wednesday, because there are ads that are time-delayed or time-sensitive, like movie ads. A movie's opening up this week, or a product launch this week, or a book coming out, or whatever. There's things that they want you to see today, and there are others that are, you know, perennials, McDonald's, you know, what does it matter? You've been a McDonald's ad doesn't really have unless it's some particular food offering. So it's not clear to me when these ads, how they're running them. You know, an ad for a movie and products, they need to run now. And people choose when to stream stuff. So if it's connected to Game of Thrones, I mean, I may watch binge watch it in a week when you want me to watch it over the next three months, depending on your ad. So I can answer that question for oh, you, by the way. Oh, wow. Do tell. Yeah. I looked all over, so, couldn't find the answer. I mean, they so, say uh, you buy eyeballs is what you do. You say, I want an 18-year-old male. Yeah. So what you're, and behavioral. Right. So what I mean by that is if you look up Google programmatic advertising, and I will uh, wait right here for the next four years for you to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> because once you do, basically what is happening, and Peacock is a very good example of this, uh, they are selling ads not based on show per se or time or per time se. Slot. But There's no time slot. Yeah. Yeah. They are basically saying, hey, uh, you want to reach a certain people, people who will actually go out and buy women's shoes, uh, very pricey women's shoes. We're going to charge you more for letting the, the people who will definitely do that, okay, who are in the market for that, we're going to charge you a little more for telling that person that they are, uh, that, that you have some new shoes hitting the store. And it's called programmatic advertising. And then they bid people against one another. Right. But so I don't understand how that works. Is on, I understand that. But how does that work on streaming? I have an account for Peacock. My mother and my brother all watch it. They don't know who's in my household. They only know, may know me. They've probably, they've profiled me, of course. They have my credit card number. So they know who I am, but they don't know the two other people who are watching stuff on that service. So how do they know that it's my sports mad 64 year old brother? or my 92-year-old mother rather than me, a healthy young 54. <laughs> well, here's a question for you. Um, do you have different accounts set up where no. you go, I'm going to... Okay, so basically what... The, and so they wouldn't we, know yes. by the name Mimi or or Dave who those people were. No, 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 no. And they don't even know, like, you, they don't care that it's Michael Giltz. What they care about is the the aggregated information. Right. And right. yes, you are one of those people that they probably look at and go, oh my God, we have to send him everything. Like, <laughs> he likes sports and he likes women's shoes. But then he likes they need to have better, you know, analysis of who's watching the television uh, when it comes to streaming and they need to share that info with advertisers. Are they doing that? Because it's oh, a yes. black hole of it it's a black hole of information. So it's only Netflix that is not sharing it. Oh yeah, no Netflix? Put Netflix they aside. Don't have, they because, don't have ads. They don't have ads. Right. Put Netflix aside. This is Hulu, Peacock, any place that shows ads in this fashion, whether it's 
on a streaming service or whether you're watching The Daily Show, right. for instance, on um, ComedyCentral.com, okay? Right. They're serving you an ad because they know that browser, that guy, he goes to a right. lot of bedding manufacturers. Let's send him uh, right. the Casper ad for Casper mattresses. Right. That's that's Yeah, I got those for a year after I looked up a bed frame. Good Lord. Yes, I understand how <laughs> they do it online. And when you're on cable and TV, they have a better sense of who you are. On streaming, they can't control when you watch. They can't. They, they have less of a vision of who you are. They might want to say, you know what? We'll pay. We'll lower your rate for a year if you tell us who's in your household and give us the demographics. You know, they really. Well, might. let's put it this way: they absolutely know who you are to the point where well, they the know where I battle- am. Of course, they know who I am. They know everything I've done ever. Yes. Yeah. But they don't know my the battle between between Roku and HBO Max was in part, in large part, about the advertising revenue right. because it's gotten so granular. It used to be very hard to find out this information. Now it's so granular. They can really laser target the market that they want to reach. That's and right. if you, uh, you to try and get into programmatic advertising and that topic here would be so, I mean, that's a, that's a show and a, well, a show. If you're, a if you're an expert on that area and you want to teach us, give us a call, reach out to us. Berlin just gave the info earlier, but I got more info about Roku. They just acquired a new franchise. They acquired this old house. They acquired the entire franchise, the place where it's filmed, apparently, even though I thought that would be on set. And they acquired 1,500 plus episodes of this old house, the granddaddy of home makeover shows. This is the granddaddy of them all. So everybody's buying content and IP, that's for sure. And talk about People not getting the information they want and the, and the information they need. Look at the WGA and streaming. A top showrunner on Key and Peele is suing and trying to get a class action lawsuit going. They argue that Viacom CBS undercounted or simply ignored residuals that were owed to shows like Key and Peele, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and Tosh 2.0. When the issue was raised, the WGA signed a sweetheart's deal that wiped out past liability. These people have now filed a lawsuit to uncover exactly how much money was at stake and why this deal was struck when it cheats the very writers the WGA is meant to advocate for. Chances are this will get settled long before we get to court and get to open up all the books, but that's an interesting one to keep an eye on. There's gambling in this establishment? I'm shocked. (laughs) That's right. We've got a list of charts. Speaking of streaming and live TV, I've got two charts for you this week. One is a combined chart of the top shows on streaming based on how many minutes of that property were watched. So whether it's a TV movie or a feature film or a one-off two-hour documentary or a 10-season-long series, they just add up the total minutes watched of that property and say, who is that number one this week? So Good Girls is on top from Netflix with 1 billion 80 million minutes viewed. That's an acquired show that they got. Number two is Grey's Anatomy with almost 900 million minutes viewed. That's also acquired. Number three, Criminal Minds. You can see, you go down the list, it gets to number five before you hit a show that is an original on streaming. And that is Netflix's crime scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. 806 million minutes were viewed this week. And then you go down the list, there you go, original, original, acquired, They are all from Netflix, except for Disney Plus with WandaVision. That's in its, I think it's the second to last episode, because we're looking at the week of mid-February, the week that ends February 21st. Right below that, I got another chart. It's the most popular shows in prime time, or I should say in in television, prime time, based on total viewership, live plus three. You all know what that means. Live plus three means people watch it and who watches it within the next three days, either on demand or DVR or whatever, whatever way they can track it. The biggest show that week was Oprah with Meghan and Harry, 21 million people. Nothing else was even close. And then NCIS on CBS with 12 million, FBI, 10 million, Blue Bloods, 9 million, Young Sheldon, 9 million. I'd love to be able to compare all of this to what's going on in streaming and syndication and all that. And this what this chart, I go down to number 25, because it includes not just stuff on the major networks. If you go down, you will find out that below that, the biggest scoring show on cable was Curse of Oak Island on the History Channel, which reached 3.9 million people in Live Plus 3. The Walking Dead? Remember when that was the number one show in television? A cable and prime to everywhere? It yes. was 20 plus million? Live Plus 3 was 3.4 million people. That's So how fun. do you count it if like, I record 
the last like five episodes of Lost. Yeah. And I still don't watch them until like my TiVo breaks and, and I've and never t- watched them. Then it never recorded. There's live plus seven and there's a live plus 30. After that, they don't care as much. So, Could it be a live plus seven years? It, because well, that that's, a, that's a good question to ask. And I think you should have that. When we're talking about how do we compare that stuff on network to stuff on streaming, the best thing would be to just put everything into eyeballs and say, all right, this episode of Bridgerton on Netflix reached how many eyeballs? However long is it that takes. how you're going to solve? Is that how you're going to solve ratings? Well, no, we could also. Didn't you say you were going to solve ratings? I, I thought you said you were going to ratings. I feel like the minutes viewed for a property is an interesting thing. And for this week, we know, for example, Grey's Anatomy, whatever episode somebody watched, when they watched it online, they watched on Netflix 892 minutes of Grey's Anatomy. Each episode is 43 minutes long. You divide that. It's like, 20 million episodes or something were watched, you know, something like that. Nor 22 million episodes were watched. No, 20 million episodes at 40 minutes each. Yeah, it's like 20, 20 million episodes of 40 plus minutes each gets you to about 900 million minutes. That's great. And that's kind of like the bestseller list for books. They tell you how many books were sold this week. In this case, they're telling you how many minutes of Grey's Anatomy overall were watched. If you want to, if you want to show how many copies of book is sold overall, you say, okay, this week, the newest Harry Potter sold 1.2 million copies. Total worldwide of that, of that book, you know, 434 million copies. And that's what they do. John Grisham, this week, he sold 200,000 copies. Total copies of this book sold 3,425,722. You could do that with TV shows and total streaming. You could just keep adding up. Alongside this week, you should show us what its total you know, all time total is of eyeballs because that's really a number that matters too. You would look back on the end of the year, you want to know, hey, how many total eyeballs? Even better would be if you convert it into people watching a particular episode. We know that, you know, 20 million. That's the one thing Netflix wants to hide though. That's the one. I don't know why. I don't know why they want to keep it a secret. If they, they should have good news to share. They've got great stuff. That's it's popular. It's getting traction. If they want to someday, uh, will they do a free freemium service? I don't know. But the promotional ability to know that Oprah with Meghan and Harry was number one, to know that NCIS is one of the biggest shows in the world, that helps. Knowing that 911 well, on it, Fox it, it, is in the top 10, it, really, it helps the network and the studio and the people who make it. And, and Netflix makes a lot of shows. Right. It helps Netflix know that. Okay. Because part of knowing what show to make is knowing what people will watch. Right. But and they don't want to be telegraphing to Amazon. No, hey, you know all- what you should be doing is a true crime series with, uh, that's set in the military. And it's, you know, they, they don't want to be telling people, no. nor do they want to turn to the producers and, and actors and say, you know what? We should really be paying you more money. A lot of people watch this show. Instead of, well, that's cheating them. But if you want to be clear yeah. about it, the best thing you want to do is reach your audience and you want shows to be hits instead of being scared that somebody might find out you have a hit you should be shouting it from the mountaintops morgan wallen has the number one album on the billboard charts for the 10th week in a row that will make people say gee i should check that out avatars on the top of the movie chart list again maybe i should watch it uh the number one show you know ncis i've never watched it maybe i should check it out young sheldon that's the top in the top five those charts are free advertising it's the best way to let people know they should be watching your show netflix has a problem of sort of just things fall into a black hole bridgerton debuts it does great and then you never talk about it again because there's no new episodes coming and people have to struggle to find ways to talk about it if they could talk about every week how it's on the charts and it's this big show and it's drawing in people and it's bringing more eyeballs in that's free advertising i think they're missing the boat but they're not going to do it because we'd have to get everybody to open up their books. We can see the books are closing on movies, so they're not about to open up in television. It's a shame because I think they're missing out on a really great thing. I'd love to do a chart that would really bring all of this together, but people aren't going to share their info. I'd love just to do a chart. I have to compile the chart to find out what the top 100 shows are in television and cable. You know, Why should I have to struggle to find out that Colbert draws 4 million people last week? It should just be out there. Judge Judy episode that reaches 9 million people a week. If you had a chart listing every show uh, episode that aired last week and how many people it reached live plus three, live plus seven, guess what? Judge Judy would be like, have five of the top 20 shows and she deserves it because she's really popular. That's why she makes 50 million bucks a year. I don't know. It'll never get fixed because they don't want to share the info, but we're fixed, aren't we? We're done for the week. 
We are. Oh actually. my god, people and, died. I forgot. Death. Yeah, Death. I was going to say I don't know how this is a handoff to the obituary segment, but you know, we're almost done for the week and I'll, there are I'll some be, people who are done forever. I'll be quick. That's how I was going to conductor segue. Conductor James into that. Levine died at the age of 77, one of the great conductors of all time. I used to love going to the Metropolitan Opera with our friend Stephen Garrett. I would sit there in the audience James Levine's chair would rise up. There'd be a little halo over his head from his frizzy hair. And you know, ah, James Levine is in charge. And he would begin to conduct an opera or concert or whatever it might be. Sadly, the last years of his life marred by the fact that he took advantage of his position and sexually uh, harassed, assaulted, took advantage of, abused people, young men who were you know, desperate for career advancement, and he had a ton of power. And so he ended his career in ignominy. It's a, it's a terrible shame, but it's good that he did because he did bad things for all those years. It's a terrible shame that those people were taken advantage of and had sometimes their careers ruined because they wouldn't give in to his sexual advances. So I'm glad that he was, his, his career was toppled. I'm glad he ended it in shame because bad people shouldn't get away with that sort of stuff. He did great things with the Met. His talent as a conductor is unquestioned, but a sad end to a great career. Uh, an interesting end for actor Nicola Paget of Upstairs Downstairs fame. She died at the age of 75. The original Upstairs Downstairs is one of the greatest shows of all time. It's what Downton Abbey just wished it could be. And she had a really good career, mostly on stage and TV. She was Anna Karenina in a big BBC production. She was on stage opposite Vivian Lee, Laurence Olivier, and many others. Uh, her work Those was, hacks. Her work was derailed when she was diagnosed in 1995 with what we'd now call manic depression. She would work a little bit once it was under control, but after a few more years and writing her memoirs, she stopped. But her claim to fame is appearing in the first two seasons of the British drama Upstairs, Downstairs. She played the spoiled, impulsive daughter of the main family. And in two seasons, she did it all, literally. She rejected an arranged marriage. She walked out on her debutante ball. She dallied with socialists. She married a gay poet. That didn't work up well. She got knocked up by his publisher, since obviously the gay poet wasn't going to do it. She went to jail fighting as a suffragette. She had an affair with an Armenian financier who hasn't. She opened up a hat shop, which failed. And then she dashed off to America when she decided to walk away from the hit series. As she said to the Washington Post, Nothing more could have happened to me anyway. I could see the writer saying, what the hell do we do with her now? <laughs> <laughs> she becomes a trapeze artist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Yafik Koto also died, of course, for some of uh, some of uh, the late young, young kids. I don't know who. Homicide, Life on the Street might be where they remember him from, but he was 81. So, and, and he had a very long career. But later in life, homicide, life on the street is probably how a lot of people remember him. That is on his tombstone, but he gained iconic status when he played the villain Mr. Big, or, or two roles, really. Uh, Mr. Big had a split personality in the James Bond film. So, you know, uh, Yafet Koto, Mr. Big, a Bond villain, that puts you in the lock forever. Just like being a Bond woman, you know, playing a villain in a Bond film, that locks you in forever. Before and after appearing in the Bond film, he was in movies like Nothing But a Man, Truck Turner, Blue Collar, The Thomas Crown Affair, Alien. Uh, Sigourney Weaver had a nice shout out to him after his death. His fame rose further when he played Idi Amin in the TV movie Raid on Entebbe. I still remember that film. And he almost scored the role of Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek, The Next Generation, but turned it down in favor of film work. He also turned on the role of Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. Director Erwin Kirshner directed that movie, and he also directed Raid on Entebbe. And he said, hey, you want to play Lando Calrissian? He says, ah, I've been in space with Alien. I don't want to keep doing that. I'll get typecast. Bad call. <laughs> but it, his best work was ahead of him when he was cast as Lieutenant Al Giardello, a half-black, half-Italian cop mimicking the cultural background of Yafet Kodo in the classic TV drama Homicide, Life on the Streets. It ran for seven seasons with a final TV movie in 2000. He was nominated for his acting. He wrote three of the episodes during the final seasons, and he almost never worked again in the last 20 years of his life. I guess why settle for less when you've had the role and the show of a lifetime? And you think everything's available on streaming, but before the show began, we started talking about why, why isn't Police Squad on Paramount Plus let me ask you, why isn't Homicide Life on the Streets available anywhere? It's not streamable, though you can get bootlegs on YouTube. When you look at IMDb, you realize season one was made by one production company, season two by another, and season three on was a co-production between them and NBC Universal. And that's where you go, ay, 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 the rights are all tangled up. 
So it's a shame you can't watch it easily, but you can go to YouTube and watch episodes. Not that you're suggesting that. Never. Never. But uh, you know what? You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. You can rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do. Or subscribe to us or put us in your playlist. That helps us out too. <laughs> Get loud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, uh, I, I just I just realized what you, what you did there. Uh, okay, well, you know what? You can find those ways to subscribe to us as well as ways to contact us. Our email address is dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Our phone number, our voicemail is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. On Facebook, we're facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox. That's where you can like our page. All of that information, as well as links to all of the stories we discussed on this week's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's are you sure this episode wasn't longer than the Snyder Cut? Dot com. I'm pretty sure. It's long, <laughs> but not that long. Nothing is really that long, uh, including most superhero movies. But in any case, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com, where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.